Now, as we all know, we are currently in a series through 1 Corinthians called Everyday Discipleship. And there has been a quote by a man named Leslie Newbegin that's been reminded um, or repeated to remind us of the practical challenge that God puts in front of each of us as we've been going through this letter. And the quote goes like this. The choice for the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? Now, so far, God has caused all of us to face the truth about ourselves in the mirror of his word, right? Now, as we've been reading through 1 Corinthians, as we've been learning together from 1 Corinthians, God has set this letter in front of us as a mirror. And so we've, we've had to face the truth of ourselves regarding matters of our attitude. Is there selfish pride in me? Is there selfish pride in us that causes us to esteem our preferences over the opinions of others and our demands over the wants and needs of others? Our attitude, is there self-centered pride in me, in us, treating others with unloving comparison, competition, criticism, contention? The mirror of God's word here in 1 Corinthians has also been confronting us on the matter of our conduct. Am I, are we obedient or disobedient to God's will for singleness and marriage and sex? We've been confronted on the matter of worship. Am I, are we loving and treasuring God above all other someones and somethings? Or have I, have we made allowances and space for other loves to take God's place? And we've also been confronted in the mirror of God's word regarding our community life in the spirit. Am I, are we, participating in God's community, practicing spiritual gifts God's way with and in God's love for the edification of God's people. These are very real things that all of us are confronted with in 1 Corinthians. And hopefully you're not ignoring those things. But as James says, we're being doers of the word and not hearers only. Now, today we turn to God's mirror again here in 1 Corinthians 15. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul begins this chapter with the words, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you. Now this opening statement brings us into a new section and a new subject in this letter, and specifically, it's the resurrection. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 has been commonly referred to as the resurrection chapter. Now, when we talk about the resurrection, please do not just think of resurrection as life after death. It's something more than that. When the Bible talks about resurrection, resurrection is the rising again of the bodies of those who died and the reunion of their living spirits with their resurrected bodies. And we know from the biblical story that Jesus the Messiah was the first 
person to be resurrected from the dead. And that's why he's called the first fruits of all who rise again. And this means that Jesus died physically. And Jesus rose bodily. You see, the risen Christ, he appeared in a solid, physical, resurrected body. That means that post-resurrection, listen, Jesus was visible, he was audible, he was tangible. He spoke, he conversed, he walked and sat, he even cooked. He cooked and he ate all in his resurrection body. Now next, besides being the first to be resurrected, we see that the resurrection of Jesus secures a future resurrection of God's people. And in this future resurrection, those who have physically died and are currently alive in God's presence will be reunited with their bodies in their transformed, glorified state. Guys, this is the powerful message of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the occasion for Paul writing this chapter is that we see in this chapter that Paul was responding to a belief that existed among some people in the Corinthian church that there is no resurrection from the dead. If you look down at verse 12, Paul says, If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? You know, the pulpit commentary mentions that this group has been called the Corinthian Sadducees. The reason why is because like the Jewish Sadducees, they denied the reality of a physical resurrection. Now, their denial of a physical resurrection was most likely influenced by Greek philosophers and pagans. You see, the Greek philosophers, they considered the human body as the corrupt part of us. And so, in their philosophy, in death, a body-less spirit enters a corruption-less freedom. Real freedom is a spirit without a body. In fact, in Acts 17, you guys remember the story of Paul there on Mars Hill, the Areopagus? That as he was preaching, remember what the Greek philosophers did? They ridiculed him for affirming the resurrection of the dead back in Acts 17. And guys, this denial of a physical resurrection was not merely a Corinthian problem. In fact, it was found in other churches. In fact, it found its way into local churches through false teachers. Now, two such false teachers, their names were Hymenaeus and Philetus. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, speaking about these two false teachers, Paul said, quote, they have left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred In this way, they have turned some people away from the faith. Guys, their denial of a future resurrection of the dead was negatively affecting the current conduct of the Corinthian believers in the church, how they were behaving in the church, 
and in the world. You see, for Paul, the resurrection was not a minor trivial matter. In fact, he devoted the longest chapter of 1 Corinthians to this topic. It's important. And so this was the occasion for Paul addressing the resurrection of the dead here in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, it's also good for us to understand where this topic of the resurrection is showing up in this letter. As we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, you remember this letter starts with what? Christ crucified. And here Paul bookends this letter with Christ risen. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul taught us that the Christian life is cruciform. That means it's a cross-shaped life. I like what the theologian Michael Gorman said about cruciformity. He defined it this way. The cruciformity, it's the spirit-enabled conformity to the indwelling, crucified, and resurrected Christ. It is the ministry of the living Christ who reshapes all relationships and responsibilities to express self-giving, life-giving love of God that was displayed on the cross. Although cruciformity often includes suffering at its heart, cruciformity, like the cross, is about faithfulness and love. And this is what Paul has been teaching us in these first 11 chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. For us to understand that the Christian life is a cross-shaped life, Christ crucified. But now as we come to the final two chapters of 1 Corinthians, now here Paul reminds us that the Christian life is a Godward, countercultural life that's being lived out in the reality and the power of the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And attached to that is our expectant hope of the future resurrection of God's people. And so 1 Corinthians 15, it commences with proclamation and it concludes with exhortation. The proclamation, Paul says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached or proclaimed to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached or proclaim to you. That's how this chapter begins, proclamation. But this chapter ends with exhortation, those familiar words to us, because this is our closing benediction. There in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, my Dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So on one hand, proclamation. On the other hand, exhortation. And in between is explanation. Paul explains the meaning of the historical resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, and he helps us better understand the future resurrection of the people of God. That is what we are going to spend the next few weeks thinking about. And I'll tell you, I am so thankful that 1 Corinthians 15 is in the Bible. 
We need the message of this chapter. Listen, the year 2020 and 2021, these two years have been a difficult season for all of us, especially for those who have personally experienced death among family and friends. In fact, in our own church, there are empty seats now. Because members who are part of our church family have departed from us to heaven. Now, the Bible speaks the language of lament. And the scriptures provide freedom and space to mourn when our loved ones die. In fact, we see this in Jesus. Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, what does he do at the gravesite of his friend Lazarus? He weeps. Even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, there is still space for the man Christ Jesus to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He weeps. And so for us as Christians, we celebrate the heavenly homecoming of our loved ones who died in the Lord, and simultaneously, we mourn the loss of their immediate presence, right? God, however, God, however, does not leave us in hopeless sorrow. He assures us of the future resurrection. In fact, when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, there in 1 Thessalonians, in view of this hope that we have, Paul wrote to the the people of God to not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And it's all in the context of a funeral. It's all in the context of death. In fact, he continued to say why we don't have to mourn as those who have no hope. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, Paul continued, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, then we, we will be with the Lord forever. We need the message of this chapter. Listen, as I spent time in 1 Corinthians 15, I discovered that I, I need the message of this chapter. My dad transitioned from this present age to his glorious eternal home on February 8th, 2011, at the young age of 66. The means by which he transitioned from this life to his glorious home was pancreatic cancer. He was buried on Valentine's Day, 2011. And when we buried him, His body was clothed in one of his favorite suits, wearing his golf shoes with a golf club next to his side and holding his Bible and a family photo. Why? Because we believe he's going to rise again. 
And we believe that as his body rises again, we just wanted him to arise with the things that are the most familiar to him. It is not the end of the story for my dad's body. My dad will rise again, and God provides us with this confident hope in 1 Corinthians 15. That's why we're here. So let's launch into it. In verses 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep or they physically died. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I want you to see here that Paul's treatise on the resurrection starts with the gospel. Listen, our hope of the resurrection is not merely subjective, an emotional one. It is not a wishing upon a star kind of hope. Our resurrection hope is rooted and grounded and secure in the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. Listen, the resurrection is a gospel matter. And when we talk about the gospel, gospel means good news, and the gospel of Jesus the Messiah is the good news that God the Son entered our broken world as a human to a people estranged and separated from him to reconcile sinners and to bring us into a forever relationship, life with God by his sacrificial death and his resurrection from the dead. And this gospel is God's saving, sanctifying, settling, securing gospel. And our lives are marked by it. You see, God's church is gospel people. In fact, listen to the way that Paul talks about the relationship between the people of God and the gospel of God. He says, we heard it and we believed the gospel. We are saved by the gospel. We stand in the gospel. We firmly hold on to the gospel. The gospel is not just for altar calls. From start to our heavenly homecoming, we are gospel people. And an essential part of the gospel is, besides the cross of Christ, is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So Paul says he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, I want you to see what Paul is telling us about the resurrection here. In verses 5 through 7, Paul affirmed that Christ's resurrection from the dead was a historical event. 
In fact, he lists more than 500 reliable eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And many were still alive when Paul wrote this. In other words, he's saying, if you really don't believe what I'm telling you about these eyewitnesses, hey, they're still around. Why don't you go and meet up with them and check out for yourselves how reliable, how credible their testimony is? In fact, in Acts 1.3, Dr. Luke, the historian Luke, he tells us that for 40 days from Jesus' resurrection to his ascension to heaven, that Jesus appeared to people. Now, it's interesting that the number 40 is associated with testing. And so during these 40 days, people had time to test and to verify that the resurrection appearances of Jesus were not just false rumors or hallucinations or a bad case of mistaken identity. He appeared to people, and people saw him and interacted with him. Listen, What Paul is telling us is that Jesus' resurrection was not a non-physical, spiritual resurrection, nor was it simply a myth or metaphor. It was physical and it was historical. You see, the gospel proclaims that Jesus is king. And it announces the arrival of the kingdom of God and the historical Physical resurrection of Christ demonstrates the kingdom power of God. That's why it matters. Well, Paul goes on in verses 7 through 11, then he appeared. Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. So Paul tells us something else about the historical, physical resurrection of Christ. It is a life-changing, life-empowering reality for God's people. You see, this reality is not just a corporate experience. It's not just about us. But this reality is also a personal one. It is what Jesus is doing in me. You see, the Apostle Paul, He experienced the resurrected Christ and the reality of the resurrection firsthand. In fact, we know Paul, right? You remember that Paul encountered the resurrected Christ while on his way to arrest the Jesus people living in Damascus, Syria. We see that in Acts 9. And at his conversion, the resurrected Christ He transformed Paul from a zealous Jesus hater into a devoted Jesus follower, from an enemy of Jesus into a bondservant of King Jesus. The same man, the same man who acted out his animosity against Jesus by his persecution of Jesus' people, he became a disciple. And he spent the rest of his life serving Jesus and leading others to Jesus. How do we explain this kind of radical change? 
This is more than just psychological. This is miraculous. How do we explain this kind of instantaneous change in a man like Paul? Listen, there is no better explanation than he encountered the risen and resurrected and ever-living Christ on the road to Damascus. And it was such a miraculous thing that happened. Paul summarized his Christian life and experience with one word, grace. Now, when we talk about God's grace, it is not merely a happy thought or feeling. God's grace is the active working of God for and in and through God's people. You see, the resurrected Christ brought Paul into this transforming, living, and empowering experience with God's grace. That's why he could say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. You see, for Paul, he was living in and through God's grace in the resurrected Christ, and the resurrected Christ was a living reality in and through Paul's life. So the question we ask ourselves is, is this true for us, can each of us share a story that resembles Paul's of radical change and how the reality of God's active grace is still working in and through us right now? Not just stories about what happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago, or not just what you hope will happen a year from now with New Year's resolutions coming around the corner again. But what about now? What about today? Is the grace of God a living reality in our lives? And so Paul writes in verses 12 and 13 and verse 20, but if it is preached that Christ had been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of Christ is a fact of history. And Christianity exists because Christ is risen and alive, and the resurrected Christ brings real change to people. Listen, this is gospel truth. And this truth will be expanded as we continue our journey in this chapter. So that's the flyover of verses 1 through 13 and verse 20. But now I want to zoom in our attention to two verses here in 1 Corinthians 15, and that's verses 3 and 4. Because here, if we understand that the fact of the resurrection is grounded and secure in the gospel, we need to make sure we understand what the gospel is. And so Paul writes in verses 3 and 4, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the announcement of the gospel. Paul announces Christ crucified. 
He says Christ died for our sins according to the gospel. Listen, the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus the Messiah is the central theme of the gospel. There is no gospel without Christ crucified. In fact, Paul says it's according to the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, God used people to write the Scriptures. That is, God's written words, telling us about his coming Messiah who would be killed as a sacrifice to save us from our sins. In fact, Jesus affirmed this after he rose from the dead. Remember that? There in Luke 24, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Yeah, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He died... For our sins. Everyone is a sinner. Now, I know that that is not a politically correct statement. People don't like hearing that. But the Bible clearly tells us that everyone is a sinner who needs someone to rescue him and her from the penalty and power and presence of sin. And with all this reshaping of how people define sin, I think that John Piper gave a great description of sin when he described it as, it is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. And Jesus the Savior, he is the Savior that we need. Because he's the only one who dealt with the penalty and the power of sin by his sacrificial death on the cross. Look to Christ. Look at him. He was arrested, tried, and pronounced guilty of claiming to be God's son and Messiah. He was abandoned by his friends. He was mocked and beaten with fists. His back was lashed to shreds by Roman whips. Roman soldiers donned him with a crown of thorns, a reed scepter, and a Roman robe in sadistic fun. He carried his own crossbeam and nailed to a T-shaped cross, hands and feet. He hung there for six hours, suffocating. He bore our sins. That's a sacrifice God provided for the atonement of our sins. And there he proved God's love for us, completed the requirements for our salvation, paid the ransom for our redemption, satisfied God's wrath against against sin, declared victory over sin, and was lifted up by God as the king of the kingdom of God. And then he died. Christ died. Look at him. See him there on the cross. 
He's there hanging on the cross, suffering, suffocating, dying to save us from the penalty of sin. See, the consequence for our sins is spiritual death in hell. And this includes God's ongoing punishment for sin and eternal separation from God's life-giving presence. That means a forever aloneness. You're not going to be in some room with all your best friends suffering together. This is a forever aloneness from everything good, from everything bright, and from everything wholesome. And so on the cross, Jesus was punished for our sins in our place. And he removes God's punishment from everyone who by by faith pledges their allegiance to Christ the King. See, in Christ, we have freedom from sin's penalty and we have a life-giving relationship with God now and forever. Christ died to save us from the penalty of sin. But Christ also died to save us from the power, the rule, the dominion of sin. You see, without Christ, people are in bondage to sin, behaving like slaves of sin. And on the cross, Christ defeated and declared his victory over sin. Now, in view of this, theologians refer to Christ crucified as Christus Victor. Christ the victor, not Christ the victim. There's something glorious and powerful about the message of Christ on the cross. Christ the victor, he defeated and declared his victory over sin. And that means that in Christ, we are not under the rule of sin. And that means we live in the everlasting life giving life of God, and we serve him by the Spirit in real spiritual freedom. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. He took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession. For the transgressors. What does the gospel tell us about Jesus? Christ crucified. But it doesn't end there because then it wouldn't be good news. The good news is not only that Christ is crucified, but Christ risen. This is the gospel. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So 
just as Christ crucified is that necessary, essential part of the gospel, listen, there is no gospel without the resurrection of Christ. Alongside the sacrificial death of Jesus the Messiah, the glorious resurrection of Jesus the King is the central theme of the gospel. Again, the Old Testament prophets, they foretold the resurrection of the Messiah in the scriptures, and Jesus confirmed it after his resurrection. Again, in his post-resurrection appearance in Luke 24, verses 45 through 47, we read, then he, that's Jesus, opened there, that's the disciples, their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Why is the resurrection of Jesus a big deal? So glad you asked. Well, number one, because it confirms that God accepted Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Hebrews 8 through 10 tells us that. The resurrection of Jesus proves Christianity is true. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 and 20 tells us that. The resurrection of Christ proclaims Jesus to be the Son of God in power and the Lord of all. Romans 1, 3 and Romans 14, 9. The resurrection of Jesus makes it possible for sinners to be born again, born of God, alive to God, 1 Peter 1, 3. And the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our future glorious resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 through 23. Listen, Christ crucified saves us from the penalty and power of sin. Christ risen will save us from the presence of sin at our future resurrection. It's just such good news that at the resurrection, we will not have to deal with sin ever again. And that is our confident hope because Jesus is alive. And that's why we gathered here today, isn't it? The church gathers on Sunday. Why? Because King Jesus rose again on Sunday. The celebration of resurrection is not to happen just once a year on Easter. We gather as the people of God. We sing together as the people of God. We learn together as the people of God. We serve one another as the people of God. Why? Because we're alive, because Jesus is alive. How can Sunday church be the most joyless time of the week? We should be loud. We should be joyful. We are alive because Jesus is alive. And we gather here right now because 2,000 years ago, something marked history. And it is the unchanging fact of history. Jesus rose again from the dead. And we are the people of that resurrection. This is the glorious message of the gospel of the resurrected So as we move into a time of response, let me just give you three questions. Number one, and let's be honest with this. Remember, God's word is a mirror. 
And this mirror has been placed in front of us. And we have to be honest with what we see or you and I will walk away with zero change. What is your relationship to the gospel? Are you believing it and standing in it and living in it? What does it look like in your relationship with God and others? That's the first question. The gospel is not compartmentalized, or it should not be compartmentalized from our normal routines in life. Everything about who we are from the inside out, it happens in the context of the gospel. Question number two. Are you in a real relationship with the resurrected Christ? And are you experiencing the reality of resurrection life and living in and living out God's active grace today? This experience is not subjective. It's not private. The reality of resurrection life spills out over us, through us, from us. What do people see in you? And the third question, are you living in full allegiance to King Jesus? Have you started a forever long relationship with God by receiving the gospel of the resurrected Christ? Listen, I'm not naive when it comes to Sunday morning church. St. Augustine spoke of the church as the visible and the invisible church. What he meant by that is that in our Sunday gatherings, what we see is the visible church. We see human bodies in front of us, behind us, around us. And these people identify themselves as the member of that local church, but not every person we see visibly is part of the true church, right? It's possible to look like a Christian, but without the reality of the risen Christ. So there is the invisible church. The invisible church are those people that God sees, He doesn't just see the collective crowd. We're into numbers. God is into quality, reality. And so as he looks around this campus, as he looks into this room, he sees those that have truly pledged their allegiance to King Jesus. That's why for me, as a pastor and as a preacher, I generally make it a habit that after I preach the gospel, I want people to respond to the gospel. So as we finish up our time together today, as the worship team comes out and as we close up our time together, I want to give any person here an opportunity. If you have never truly given your heart to Christ, this Jesus, I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about Christ. If you have never truly given your heart to this Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you, we want you to respond to the good news of Jesus today. 
And so I want to pray, and I'm going to give you an opportunity for anyone that's in this room, either inside the sanctuary or outside, if you want to put your faith in Christ, if you want to pledge your allegiance to Christ the King today, I'm going to ask you to stand. Now, I know that that might be a, a terrifying thing for some, but here's the thing. The Christian life is described as a stand, right? Paul uses that word, that metaphor in Ephesians. And that means that as Christians, we're going to be standing for Christ every day. And we've got to start somewhere. And I can't think of a better place for you to make your first stand than in God's house, surrounded with God's people, that's going to cheer you on as you stand up for Christ. Amen? Let today, in this place, on this campus, be where you make your first stand as you pledge your allegiance to King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for speaking to us the gospel. Lord, you tell us that the gospel is your power for salvation. that in the foolishness of the message, foolish in the minds of the world, that it is the power of God to those who are being saved. So, Father, I want to ask that your Holy Spirit would now just be moving upon every restless heart as the Spirit was brooding, hovering over the waters of the deep there in the creation story in the midst of all that darkness and chaos as the Holy Spirit was just brooding over every chaotic wave. And then you said, let there be light. There was an ordering. There was a creating. And Lord, as your word says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Father, will you bring that ordering today? Father, will you bring that order in the chaos of our hearts? And Lord, we ask, let there be light. And so for the sake of Christ, in the name of Jesus, if there's anyone here who wants to surrender their hearts and pledge their allegiance to King Jesus right now, will you stand up for Christ and let him bring light and life into your hearts? Anybody at all? Anyone at all? Anyone else? Beautiful. Let this be the place where you make your first stand for Christ. Anyone else? Anyone who wants God to bring light and life into your disordered, chaotic life? So, Father, for these who stood, 
know their hearts, you know their prayers, you know their longings, you know their cries. And Lord, we thank you that on the authority of the word of God, we can say to every person who said yes to Christ, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is removed. Your shame is taken away. And you are right with God. And you have a forever hope of a forever life with God. And we pray that your spirit will begin the change immediately causing them to love and to follow and to serve you with their whole lives. We pray these things in the name of the one who died and rose again, the name of Jesus, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. In Jesus' name, amen.